Welcome to uh, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn on what is apparently my uh, Retirement Sucks Tour. Yes, uh, I have uh, said for the record that I want to get the show down to once a week, maybe even twice a month. And well, here I am doing two episodes this week. Yeah, I know. Listen, I'm a rock and roller, and I try to step away, and then the music just brings me right back, man. It, it just, mm, come on back. So there I am. And, of course, the uh, the guest on the phone had an incredible uh, amount to do with why I'm here today. Uh, Joe Bonamassa, guitarist extraordinaire, uh, recently dropped a new single called A Conversation with Alice, and we got to talk about it. You got to talk about it. You know, Joe, Joe's the man. So we, we were texting back and forth and we just said, all right, let's do it. So we pulled the trigger. And I have to say, I have to say, thank you, Joe. This was one of the greatest conversations I've had the, definitely this year. And if not in my career, Joe was just absolutely terrific, charming, well-spoken, bright, everything you could ask for in a guess. And I, 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 Mitch LaFon, uh prematurely cut the interview down at about 45 minutes because we, we literally could have gone on for two hours. And I thought, you know what? If it comes to perhaps doing a part two, let's go for it. But let's just take this nugget of gold that Joe l- put in my lap and let's just keep it at 45. Let's not, you know, stretch it out to the point where yeah, so so thank you, Joe. That was just it was terrific. And uh, if you look back at his career, from Bloodline to his solo stuff to Black Country Communion, it, it's it's just remarkable, remarkable. So anyway, listen, folks. I know I said, and I'm going back to what I was saying at the beginning. I was going to walk away, and I'm going to do less shows, and then these opportunities come up. And people like Joe, and you just got to go, all right, I got to do this. So, listen, I'm a fan of Ozzy, Scorpions, Thunder, Kiss. They have all announced farewell tours, and 30 years later are still touring. Okay, uh, slight exaggeration, 20 years later they're still touring. So, uh, a few episodes ago, I, I gave you the farewell to everybody, and... I just haven't stopped. So, uh, guess what? As a fan of Ozzy, the Scorpions, Kiss, and Thunder, we all know that farewell means see you later. So I'm back, and uh, without further ado, here is the guitarist extraordinaire, the one, the only, Joe Bonamassa. We are speaking with a guitarist extraordinaire, Joe Bonamassa. Uh, bonjour, Joe. How are you? I'm doing good, Mitch. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm really I've been excited about this for a while since we since we hatched our little plan to do this via the internet or telephone. Yeah, yeah. We, we we hatched this plan through uh, through Twitter messaging. There you go. Uh, but uh, by the way, I love what you do on Twitter. Uh, you've been posting a lot of little videos and clips. Like uh, recently, you had uh, trying to do uh, modern day pop or something like that. And it's just like that's so brilliant. It's just it's it's. I don't want to say it's cute, but it's 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 just nice. Instead of being oh this life sucks and blah, 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 you just go to your feed and you see these little things and you go. 
All right. Made my day. Yeah. You know, you know what I try to do is I have a really dry sense of humor and it's sometimes it, sometimes it, 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 it is lost on some, of, on some of the people that watch it and they actually think it's, I, I'm, I'm like really serious about things, you know? I, I, you know, the, the whole thing about modern day pop, I mean, it's just like 1950s rockabilly. And I was just like, you know, it, it's insinuating I'm isolated and behind the times, you know? And I just, you know, what I try to do, like if I wasn't a musician or in the public eye, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have social media. I just wouldn't be the, the guy that would want to clutter an already cluttered, you know, uh, freeway with more cars, you know? But it's a good way to reach fans. And it's a good way to give them uh, an insight into your personality. You know, it's not, I'm not the guy in the suit on stage. That's a character. That's another, that's another person, you know? And, and it's, you know, I'm just Joe, the guitar nerd that's done pretty good for himself over the years. And I just like to share it, you know? Now, before we get to your your new single, A Conversation with Alice, let me just ask you about that because we are in this space where there's no concerts, there's no, a lot of new records aren't coming out, they're being delayed, we don't know when it's going right. to, so how important is that social media space to make sure people don't forget you? Because, you know, the saying is, out of sight, out of mind, and for a rock guy, or, or a musician, I should say, out of mind is not where you want to be, right? Yeah, and I think it's a delicate balance. I think, I think there, you, you, you you can't assume everybody's going to forget you in three weeks, but you have to kind of be out there. You have to kind of nudge everybody going, Hey, I'm still alive. Um, but I, I also think, and I've seen it a little bit. I've seen the oversaturation of, of social media by some artists that I, I feel in some ways is going to dilute them moving forward. You know, you know, it, it, it took about, 72 hours before somebody in their pajamas was in front of their, you know, fireplace, you know, dancing for nickels. And, and I, I don't believe that's good for the long-term brand because it's, it's not going to incentivize anybody to go out to a concert. If you're just, if you're literally just playing your whole, you know, songbook in your house, you know, and it's, it's the thing I feared for a long time with concerts, with virtual streaming. And I said, you know, yeah, you can't, you can't download a ticket. Well, we kind of just did. And, you know, it's, it's going to be challenging to get the consumer confidence back going forward out of, out of this pandemic. Um, so it's, it's the, 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 to me, I think the right path is somewhere in the middle. It's a little bit, but not oversaturated. And I, I think you'll be fine in the end. All right. So so let me ask you about that, because you, you said you can't download a ticket. But is there not some sensibility in, in looking at a new model where some of an old some of the older bands, the Rolling Stones, the U2s, the Def Leppards, instead of putting their body and soul through the rigors of a 200 tour, uh, 200 date right. tour, blah, blah, can't they just sort of put on a soundstage in LA and do one night? Everybody pays 10 bucks. And whether you're in Australia, Japan, Montreal, or Tokyo, or whatever, uh, Paris, you get to see a two hour show and they get all the money and then they, you know, the links to the buy the t shirts and it's done and they can go home for the rest of the year. And, and maybe those bands can last longer. Is, is that not something that maybe could make sense? Well, we're, we're heading there, you right. know, and I'm not saying we're not going to participate. Um, in something like that around the time of the record release. Because the way we look at it is 
2020, the rest of the touring season is, in, in my opinion, over. Um, I, I, I don't foresee it coming back. And if it comes back, it's, they're going to, they're going to put different rules on, on the concerts. They could sell every other seat or, you know, whatever they come up with. Then you'd be playing to half house. And it's just, it's a, that's a tough economic model because, you know, everyone thinks that whatever price point is on the ticket goes straight into the pockets of the artist. Well, the gross does, but then you have to pay your crew and your rent cap. And, you know, if you want a bag of Doritos, you have to pay for that. You have to pay for gas, even though it's really free now. It's like $5 a barrel. Um, you know, it, 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 it's it's going to be a different model when when the live stream comes in and people figure out that it is it is a new way of, of, of putting on a concert. I... The, the equivalency I, I, I put to that is the difference between driving a race car and driving a race car simulator. And it's, I, the, the, there's something kinetic about a concert. It's the feel, it's the collective, it's the, the crowd is participating, whether they know it or not, in about 15% of the energy. The band can go up there all day long. And, and, and play to nobody and sound check. But then when the crowd gets in, all of a sudden the extra 15% of the energy from the band and the crowd come out. And it's, it's all, it's all interrelated. And I, and I think if you, if you go to a live stream only type of touring models, you're going to lose that. It's almost going to feel like a rehearsal. It's like you're playing for your, you know, you're playing for your wife or, you know, <laughs> the crew guy that set up the gear. You yeah, know, yeah, they and, care like they don't, they don't and, and you're you're absolutely right. Listen, I I've been to a bunch of sound checks in my life, and you see them do whatever song it is, rock and roll all night, or hot blooded, or whatever, and they they run through the whole thing, and you're sitting there going, okay, that sounded great, but until you get that packed arena, it's just not the same song. It's not the same experience. It's, not, it's you know, I I always say it's like you know, um, the the sound the sound guys always say, well, you know. Sound check, it was fine. And then when you guys got up there, everybody turned up. Nobody turned up. I didn't touch it. I didn't touch a dial from sound check. I just played harder because it's the difference between training and battle conditions. You know, it's like you're out there, you're 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 playing for every seat in the house, and you want every everyone, you know, in that theater um, to 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 feel it. You know, and and there's a reason why people get off stage and they're exhausted and, and, and spent is because there's that energy that the crowd pulls from you. And I think you lose that with the live stream. I, I, you know, it just, it's one guy's opinion. No, I agree. And, and okay, now I do want to get into your, your career and your music and stuff, but I'll, I'll ask you one last thing. A lot of fans have been debating whether when this all comes back, do ticket prices go up to make for uh, make up for the difference, or do they go down? My opinion is that they have to go down because if you're going to start charging people double the price or or you know 250 bucks for it, they're just going to go. No, I'm, I'm not just not going to risk it. And and I've been unemployed for nine months, and you know, like I think yeah. it, you know, yeah, I'm not going. You know, um, yeah. I think it it just depends on a case for case basis. I think I think the days of six hundred dollar tickets for Heritage Acts will probably be over for a, a, a minimal eighteen months to twenty four months uh, going forward. Whether they choose to participate 
is another story. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it, you know, there's, there's some act that go, I, I won't do it unless I have the G4 on the, you know, Teterboro waiting for me after the show at Madison Square Garden. Uh, and, and that's a personal choice. Um, you know, it, to me, I think in some cases, in some acts, the ticket prices will stay the same. I think in some cases, most cases, the ticket prices will go down. Um, the grosses will go down um, and the production companies are going to get hit. I can only, uh, you know, again, I can only afford to bring uh, this many lights now, or I can only afford to, you know, based on the new, you know, grosses and, you know, and, and, and walk out potential. There's going to be a lot of readjusting, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, acts, everybody got fat for the last 10 years, including this blue boy. And, 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 you know, and you have to like, you have to kind of just like, okay, I'm a musician. We're going to go, we're going to go back and maybe if we have to strip it back to the basics for a minute, no problem, you know, get it before, do it again. And I think it's a, it's a good, it'll be a good reality check going forward on, on, on how, you know, you operate as an, as, a, as you know, what your priorities are as an artist, especially in a touring, you know, scenario, you know, it's like, are, are you there? Cause you like the four seasons. Are you there? Because, uh, you know, you just don't, you don't care and just to get up on any stage and play to whoever's there. You know, it's going to be a gut check for a lot of acts that have been established for a while. Oh, it absolutely will be. And I think uh, a lot of bands are, or, or I think the industry is going to change how it does business because what fans, a lot of fans may not know is that they pay these guarantees and if a show gets canceled, you keep the guarantee. And I think Ticketmaster and stuff are just going to go, listen, we're not giving you no more guarantees because we've been left holding too much of the of the bag on this. So I think that's going to change how it's all done from that point of view too. Anyway, well, we will see. Well, I, I heard I heard that there. The, I read I read in a, an article that that uh, Ticketmaster is is on post. They're using it's a it's wordplay. If the show is canceled, they'll release the box office. If the show is postponed, they're going to keep the box office. Well, if it's postponed past a certain sell-by date, people are going to go, listen, I spent $500 on four tickets to see X, and now you're telling me I can't get my money back, but that show is now fall of 2022. And I could really use the $500 on April 20th, you know, 2020. You know what I mean? If people are unemployed, they're going to be, you know, you're going to see a revolt if they, if they try to pull that off. Um, because, you know, and you're going to see acts that participate in that not get their fans back because they're going to feel like they were involved in some sort of like, like heist, you know, and, and it's going to be difficult, you know, it's, it is, it's difficult for the acts too, because they have all this money in the box office and they intend on playing the show. They want to play the show, but they can't, you know, but they also have their own bills. To pay. It's, it's a very slippery slope that, that. CEOs and business people above my pay grade are going to have to figure out in, 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 you know, in a short period of time. Yeah, but anyway, all right, let's let's get away from all the the doom and gloom. You know, we we love music, so let's talk music. You just put out a conversation yeah. with Alice, and because I'm an Alice Cooper yeah. fan, my brain reads it as a conversation with Alice Cooper, which is very cool. But what is a conversation with Alice? Because it, it's sort of well, that wasn't sort of. It was completely unexpected. I didn't see any sort of build up of like, hey, next week is my single. It's sort of like, hey, look, there's a song. <laughs> so, so talk to me yeah, about I this. 
the Abbey Road record is going to come out in um, October. I believe the end of September, early October. We, we lose or draw, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. We're, we're putting it out. And I wrote a bunch of songs last year that we were scheduled to make this record in July of 2019. And my drummer, Anton Fig, broke his ankle. And, you know, it was uh, a bucket list for him to record at Abbey Road, even though he's recorded everywhere. And he's been our drummer for almost 15 years, you know, on record. And, and in the live band for almost six. So I was like, okay, we're going to postpone it. We're going to come home. And I wrote these songs. And the conversation with Alice was about a period of time in 2017 where my life began to kind of unravel uh, in a personal sense. Like, you know, I was a workaholic. I was, a, I was so driven. I was in control of my personal relationship with my, my then girlfriend. I was, you know, I was just, I was, I was in the process, the early stages of burning out. And you know me, Mitch, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of lots of opinions and I wear my, my crazy on my sleeve. And it was suggested to me that I go see somebody to talk about my quote unquote problem. And I did. And I went to this very nice woman. Her name wasn't Alice. Her name didn't sing well. Um, you got to, still got to sing it. And um, I went there twice. And I did a lot of personal reflection. And I decided that those problems and the kind of crazy that, that, that a few people around me wanted me to address made me good at my job. And I decided I'd rather be good at my job than a vanilla wafer. And so... I made a personal choice. I really don't want to address these things that make me quirky and driven and see all of the above. And, you know, being the most balanced guy in blues guitar, I had chips on both shoulders that I consistently have people to knock them off and challenge them to do so. So I, I, I stopped going, but I wrote a song about, about this, the, the, the two trips down to, to, to see quote unquote Alice. And I did a lot of reflection about that. And, and, uh, you know, it, the, rec, the new record is very, um, it, it's very derived from real events, the whole thing. And it's the first time ever I've done a, a record like that where I just kind of opened up my personal life, which for forever has been a very closed book. I don't talk about personal things. I, you never see me and my girlfriend posting photos of me, you know, on Instagram. I don't do that, you know. Um, it's that, that's, that's the one thing I, I, I keep to myself, which I should. So that's what the song is about. But it came out really good. Kind of like a Joe Walsh thing. Oh, I think it sounds great. Now, listen, I, I do want to explore working at Abbey Road. I do want to explore Anton Fig, but I have this question that's, that's sort of burning in my mind that I want to get to. You have over the years stated your love unequivocally for Paul Kossoff of Free and yes. Rory yes. Gallagher. And, Rory Gallagher, if you follow a band like Def Leppard, that's like their hero to them and stuff. But in North America, people sort of go, oh, who? Unfortunately. Now, your very, very right. first album, uh, A New Day Yesterday. First song, right. Cradle Rock, Rory Gallagher. Second song, Walk My Shadows, Free. As if you just said, these are my influences and you're getting them one, two. Talk to me yeah, about right. about those guys and, and that decision on that first album to just sort of wear your heart on the sleeve and say... This is the first mother I like, and this is the second one, and then we'll get to me, you know? Right. I, you know, I think everybody's first album, if you go back 
and listen to, especially in the British blues context, it's it's basically here's my here's my record collection, and here's are my versions of my favorite songs. You, you can even look at like Zeppelin One when they did How Many More Times, and you, you know what I mean. It was like like you know Jimmy had all that stuff, all that music that was stuff he adored, and then he just did his versions of them, you know. And it was the same for me. Uh, my dad um, hit me to Rory Gallagher. And the music always sounded like blue collar, very, very straight out of the middle class factory um, life pub, you know. And there is this guy with a flannel shirt on and a beat up strap, just given 100 percent of whatever percentage he had on a given day. And I like that. And I like the song. I like his delivery. I love his slide playing. He's extraordinarily in tune as a slide player, which is very hard. Um, and only him and like Ry Cooter and David Lindley to me have that, you know. And and Paul Kossoff, I auditioned for UFO when I was 18 years old, and I drove out to Cincinnati, or I'm sorry, Columbus, Ohio, to see Pete Way and his then wife. She was a doctor. I believe she's passed on since then. Um, and we jammed with Jerry Shirley from Humble Pie in Pete's basement. And Pete went to me and he, he said, you know, your vibrato is very much like a Paul Kossoff. And I go, what's a Paul Kossoff? He goes, you're not hip to free? So he made me a cassette tape, which I still have, that I listened to in the car all the way back to Utica, New York. And as soon as I heard Walk in My Shadows and, and I'm a Mover and that really killer simple, spacious, stodgy British take on, on groove-based blues rock, I was in. And then I was like, who's this? This singer sounds like the guy who sings for Bad Company. I'm like, oh, it's the same guy, you know? And it's the same drummer. So that was my introduction to that, you know, that music. And all of a sudden, I decided at the time, you know, the, the, the guitar playing lane was very crowded with guitarists that, that were very Texas- uh, de- derived that they were Stevie Ray Vaughan's playbook from from Texas Blood to to Incept. and I just said, well, I don't want to be one of those guys, even though he is an influence. I don't need to again crowd the lane, so I'm going to drive over here and explore the British stuff and 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 my love for that music, and that's how the whole my whole career started as a solo artist. I don't think I've ever heard the. You auditioned for UFO before, so just give me a just talk to me a little bit about that. How did you sort of get into their sphere of knowledge? How did people say, "Hey, you know, was it an ad in a newspaper? Was it a friend who ta-? like? How did you almost end up being in UFO?" And and that's kind it of was, a- it came down to me. It came down to me and Vinnie Moore, and Vinnie Moore got the gig and still has it. Wow! And uh, it, Michael, it was one of those things where Michael Shanker has a one one of his classic flame outs left in a huff or whatever. They kicked them out. It, it, you know, it, it happened every 18 months and they were looking for a guitar player. And a call came into my management office saying, Hey, would Joe be interested in just trying it out for UFO? And at the time I had nothing going on. I'm like, Hell, I'll, I'll try out for the Bay city Rollers. I, I need a gig. You know, I want to, you know, I'm like 18 years old. I want to get out of my parents' house and, and play music professionally you know and i was working on demos at the time and had a little record deal but it was not going anywhere and 
So I drove out to, to Pete Wayne's house, cold. And I was like, hi, Pete. Good pre-cell phone everything. And he was the nicest cat. He is the nicest cat. And um, it was fun because, you know, we were like, you know, ripping through rock bottom and you know it was it was it was a it was a great experience especially playing with jerry shirley you know because like rocking the fillmore was definitely on my radar at the time and i was just enthralled with the fact that this is a guy who played in humble pie you know and um it was just it was and, and it came down to i was just kind of portly kid with short blonde hair you know a flying v a decent guitar tone and the ability to play the the part and then, and then, then like, and then it came down to Vinnie Moore, who's a freak of nature, had the look and the part, and already had the credibility to just jump into the jump into the band without without um without any any you know trepidations at all from the, both the fans and the band. And uh, yeah, so I, I wasn't heartbroken by it. It was just it was just you know they came down to two people, myself and Vinnie Moore. <laughs> Maybe they auditioned some other people, but that's what they told me. Wow. Make me feel good. But uh, yeah, so yeah, and, and it was pre Jason Bonham. Because Jason Bonham played in UFO in the early two thousands, I believe. So, right. you know, it was it, 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 it's 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 I sit here on the on the precipice of my forty third birthday thinking back, going, Boy, how weird did that that Jason ended up in UFO, I auditioned for UFO, we ended up in a band together, he ended up playing on my first album that I did with Kevin Shirley, not Jerry Shirley, but Kevin Shirley. It's just weird how the universe works yeah you're you're all brought together now i do want to ask about uh, black country communion but before that i want to ask about this band bloodline i last year interviewed aaron davis and we were talking yeah i did and we were talking about bloodline and 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 you know we're talking about aaron hager and we're talking about waylon krieger and i'm just like wait a minute these are all the sons and daughters and cousins of you know famous people you know uh, talk to me yeah. a little bit about that band because okay, you've got Aaron Hager, who's Sammy's son. You've got uh, Waylon Krieger, and uh, yeah, H- how did that come together? And uh, you, how did you sort of get into this? Because I see the other ones that, that have the bloodline. Um, yeah. But uh, just talk to me a little bit about that band and and why it worked and why it didn't work and why was it only five years? And it, it's just an incredibly interesting concept and by the way aaron uh hagar is a talented son of a gun i mean he can sing he can do it all so uh, let's let's talk yeah, he's, he's a great artist as well yeah um you know that i was i had to deal i had a record deal development deal with sbk records which was a, a an affiliate of uh, emi and kind of a development deal from phil ramon the late producer mentor of mine and, you know, I'm a 13-year-old kid, 13-year-old kid. I don't sing. I don't have any songs, but I can play the guitar pretty good, you know? And they're like, well, what do we do with this? You know, on paper, this was like, you know, I, I was on television. You know, I, I, there was, there was an, you know, a, a thing on primetime NBC television. I was on, even I was on the Mickey Mouse Club, I think. But don't look it up, but, it's, but you know, whatever. It, they didn't know what to do with me. You're in the so, Mickey Mouse I, Hall of Fame. Let's not forget that. You're in the Disney Hall I, of Fame. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, yeah, I'm, I'm in the Mickey Mouse Club Hall of Fame. You know, that's probably the only Hall of Fame I'll be inducted into. But, um, so I, I ran into Waylon and Barry at the Leo Fender Tribute Concert in 1992. Okay. 
And it was in, I believe in April. And I still have the poster from that. And I was an invited guest by Fender Guitars. So I had an endorsement with them at the time. And I was the youngest at the point at the, at that time was the youngest endorser of Fender Guitars since the company was founded in 1946. And um, I ran into Barry and Whalen because they were backing up Robbie Krieger. Whalen's dead. And, you know, they saw me play. I saw them play. And then their manager, my manager spoke and they're like, yeah, they're, we're kind of looking for something for Barry because he sings, but he's, you know, 18, 19 years old. I'm 13, which by the way, as far as age, that's like saying I'm a hundred and you know, you're 20. You know, it, 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 there's a lot of things that happen between 13 and 19 that, 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 you know, you're, you're, I'm, I'm a child at this point. They're young adults, big difference. And yeah, so we, in Aaron's name got uh, put in the fray from, uh, I think, uh, Robbie's manager, Aaron Hagar. And then Aaron Hagar knew Aaron Davis or something like that. Next thing you know, we're at Third Encore Studios in Burbank. I, I was just there the other day. Nothing's changed. And um, we're rehearsing and we're putting songs together. Bill Ramon's producing us and... You know, it was it was a, it was a struggle. When we went on the road, we played in nobody. We fought the good fight. We got in the van. You know, then we had uh, finally Phil kind of not lost interest, but the label wanted to make a change. We wanted more of a rock producer than Phil. And Phil got mad and left in the hop, rightfully so. But you know, I mean, it's a record company thing, and it's happened millions and millions and millions of times. Our story is not unique. And then. Um, the late Joe Hardy comes in and produces our record. And we have a scene called Stone Cold Hearted, which was played on AOR radio. I'm showing my age. Album-oriented rock. And it did fairly well. It was like in the top 20. And all of a sudden, the power of radio and media, we were on Conan O'Brien, all of a sudden, the, the clubs were filled. And people were singing the song. And then... Like everything, you know, think-itis and egos, mine included, get in the way. And we try to break the second record, and they wanted to make a change. They, they thought I was being difficult. They wanted to change in direction. They wanted to be more of an alternative rock band. I said, I said well, what are we going to do with the fans that we already we just spent four years building? You know, this is an 18-year-old saying that as well. So they kicked me out. And then the label lost interest and, uh, and the band just kind of went away. You know, it's, again, our story is not unique in the sense that, that, that it just, it's not unique. You know I mean? It happens all the time, you know, but, uh, so that, that was my first experience. And we as a band and as people made all the, 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 the mistakes, you know, that you could make, having this whole silver platter handed to you. And luckily in my case, I was young enough where my career wasn't permanently marred by that. I had, I was given an opportunity for a rebirth. And then I met Michael Kaplan at Epic. And then I met Tom Dowd. And then there, there was Joe Bonamassa, I dropped the smoking and Joe Bonamassa solo artist was born. I was pretty shitty, but, but I was, you know, I was, I was in the game. 
All right. So let me let me ask you about this, because you you've you know, you've tried out for UFO. You were in Bloodline. You were in Black Country Communion. Uh, yeah. What are some or in, in Bloodline? Let's not forget. What are some of the differences or advantages and disadvantages to being in a solo being a solo artist and being a band? Because you you sort of flirt with the band thing and then eventually go, OK, I'll go back to solo uh, and everybody loved Black Country, you know, BCC. They thought it was a great record, the great second record. So, um, you know, you, you've sort of flirted with both. How, how do you sort of see the advantages and disadvantages of both situations? The, the, the advantages of being a solo artist is like driving a Porsche 911. The disadvantages of being a band is like being the same, same driver steering a cruise ship. It's difficult. Stuff that to me is a no-brainer. It has to go through a committee of, of ideas. Um, you know, I always say democracy is a great thing as long as one person's in charge. And it, unfortunately, you know, being in a band is difficult. It, it is difficult because you have to respect everyone's opinion as an equal. You know, um, being a solo artist, you know, I'm I'm a I'm very much in favor of being in control of my own destiny. You know, um, I've seen fear of success. Um, take out very talented people along the way. And I don't have fear of success. I embrace it. Um, and the thing is, bands are great because you have four or five different ideas that you wouldn't have thought about. Bands are, are flawed because even though if you're doing fairly well, you pay all your bills, and then you got to split it five ways. And like we were talking about before we got on the air, it, it, it financially, it's a hit. It's not, it's, 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 unless you're in the Eagles, you know, um, it's, it's a hit because ultimately you do have to split it five ways and now, you know, it's, it's hard to reinvest in your career. It's hard to, you know, be fluid enough to where you can make, you know, strategic moves that cost money, you know, reinvest in yourself, you know, as far as advertising and marketing and stuff like that, because, you know, everybody's in a different financial space. Like if I said, no, we should really buy Facebook ads with the money we made from the tour to really try to propel us into another, another, you know, thousand seats. Well, maybe somebody goes, well, no, I need to pay my bills or I, I, you know, I owe a tax bill somewhere. It, it, there's a, a, a myriad of situations like that that come up time and time again in a band situation that isn't factored in. When you when you all get in the room for the first time, going, yeah, we sound pretty good, you know. It's 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 the, the that, that pesky second word in music business. It it it, it plagues bands, you know. Where a solo artist, you go, okay, this is what we have to do to make the best decision for the long term. But but you have flirted with coming back to a band like with BCC. Now we're we're at half an hour, so I'm gonna I'll ask a couple more questions, and maybe we can think about a part two. But let me let me uh, get back real quick to well, in fact, let's let's just quickly talk about Black Country Communion. For, for you, is that band done? 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 I mean, I just spoke to Glenn Hughes the other day, and he always has hope that maybe someday the planets will align and you'll get back together and do something. How how do you sort of see it? We're still an active band. I mean, we all chat. Um, we all we all chat via text or you know whatever. I speak to Jason um, and and Derek and you know Glenn a lot. We're we're still a band. We're not we're not a we're not we're not uh, we're not out of business yet. Um, you know, Glenn is in that that band, the Dead Daisies, which has taken up a lot of his 
lot of the last, I would say, year and a half. Um, and, you know, he owes, he owes them the, the full effort. You know, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's not a machine, you know, he, even though he sounds like it, he, he, he's a freak of nature. I don't know how he seems like that and still does. And so we did a couple of shows in the UK in early 2018. We released a, a fourth album and we had fun. And we enjoyed each other's company. It was it was a lot of it was a lot of fun. So we're we're um we're we're at you know in the moment right now we're we're talking about like when and if a fifth record and finally a damn tour, you know, um that we could we could get together and go out and play festivals and 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 just have some fun because that's that that's what the whole thing is about. It's really fun and and not and not work, you know. Well, and it came off; those albums came off great. So, all right, let me let me quickly get over to this this new album. Now, it's recorded at Abbey Road, uh, famous for the Beatles and all yeah. that. Is it called, you know, Joe from Live from Abbey Road, or or what is sort of the no. working title? Oh, do, can we can we say it, what the working title is? No, I cannot say what the working title is because we were waiting for the big the big reveal, like PP Barnum. But um, it has a title. Um, but it's the, you know, it's the Abbey Road project. You know, we, you know, I wanted to, on my bucket list is I wanted to write a record in England and I wrote most of the songs with Bernie Marsden and Pete Brown. For those who don't know Pete Brown, he was the lyric, lyricist. He was like a beatnik poet in the sixties and wrote like, you know, like, like she walks like a bearded rainbow, swabla for cream and, and sunshine of your love and white moon and all those like really esoteric cool lines you know that's all pete and he still has these 80 years old and he still just turns them out and like wow i to visit inside of his brain for five minutes would be a trip you know um so i wrote all these songs over there in england and wanted to record at abbey road because it was a bucket list and i wanted the album to sound british i wanted to be a real tip of the hat to my my union Jack influences and, uh, you know, and it, and it is, it sounds British. And, it, and we lived there. I lived in London for a month, month and a half, two months maybe. And was really just talking away the British sounding songs for a couple of years before we decided to get into the studio. And we, 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 we cut it in like eight days in uh, studio a, um, which is not, it's not the Beatles room. It's the bigger, it suits us more as, as humans, um, because there's no stairs, you know, and, uh, you know, some of my guys are, you know, don't like stairs and, uh, yeah, we cut it in a, and, uh, we had a blast and, um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what people think of it. I don't think everyone's going to love it because it is a bit of a departure from, the John Henry's and slow gins of the day, but I can't just keep writing those kind of songs and recycling them and playing them slow, medium and fast forever. There has to be a, there has to be a sea change of sorts. And, you know, it, it, it's a little bit of a sea change, but it's intrinsically what you've come to expect from my solo record. It's, it's, it, it's, there's big bombastic, heavy things. There's light and shade. There's, you know, overindulgence of guitar you know i know what the fans want and, and i've learned that over i don't know 42 albums that we've released in 20 years so now you said 
uh, I think you said Bernie Marsden. So are we talking the white snake Bernie Marsden? White snake Bernie Marsden, yeah. Oh, now, all right. Talk to me about that because when I look back on the discography for White Snake, I think the the Mel Galley, the Moody, the the Marsden, that's the real vibe and energy of what made White Snake great. Uh, you know, as much as I love the hair metal days of the band, um, how did you sort of hook up with Bernie, and and what did he bring to the project other than maybe some ideas? Did he play on the album? What what's what was the whole Bernie connection? I've known Bernie for. 12 years and we've been really close friends. We're guitar collector buddies. It's Bernie Mars, you know, and Bernie came to my, at first I, I met Bernie Marsden at the Royal Albert Hall, May 4th, 2009. Okay. That was my, that, I call it my career bar mitzvah. You know, it's the night Clapton came out and when everybody collectively, at least in the blues rock world, remembered how to say my last name. And I was like, Oh my God, there's, there's, uh, there's Bernie Marsden, you know? And, uh, you know, and, I'll, you know, Steve Hackett came and you know, I was like, wow, this is like Chris Squire. And I'm like, what? my dad's freaking out, you know, so am I. And Bernie and I just were just like really, really, you know, close buds. And um, and he's a great songwriter. You know, he wrote like, you know, Here I Go Again. And, you know, he, he, he has a really cool major minor English twist to all of his chord structures that that me being an American doesn't have, you know, I don't have that. And I would always kind of relate to Bernie. I'm like, Bernie, okay, what would the English do here? This sounds very pedestrian and American to me. He goes, well, no, we would do, we would go to the, the, the minor third as opposed to, I'm like, ah, of course you would, you know? And he's brilliant with all that. And a, a great lyricist and, and just, uh, we, we, we took a lot of Pete poems, you know, in lyrics that Pete would be sending over and just kind of made some sense out of them, made some structure and 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 put it together and it, we found we worked really well together as writers and we we sat in the little annex room at abbey road for two weeks and just turned this thing out and it was a great it was a great um it was really a great uh, experience and um you know and and so that's how I, I i you know came to do this thing with bernie and pete i've known probably just as long 10 years and we've always threatened to do this. And I said, now is the time. It just felt right. Now is the time. And it's a, it's a new chapter in uh, my career, you know, because the last three records I did solely in Nashville uh, with Nashville writers. And they have that, they have that 615 sound. Um, and this one here has the plus 4-4. Four four, and that's what I was going for. And it was just, uh, you know, and, and it worked. Wow. Wow. I can't, you know, I can't wait to hear this now because I'm just thinking back to an album like Ready and Willing with Mickey Moody and Bernie and, and, and Neil Murray and those, it just, that's the sound. I mean, that's just the sound, right? So, so hopeful. And by the way, he would be a bucket list interview for me one day. I'd love to get him on the phone, but, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll hook you guys up. I'll uh, hook you guys up. Oh, uh, please do. I'll because I, I'm telling you that early stuff. Yeah, um, uh, what do you, what do we, uh, what is it? Trouble, Love Hunter, Re that's White Snake, man. That's the real yeah. deal. Um, let me just finish with this. Uh, you of course have Anton Fig that has been playing with you, as you said, for a dozen years and six or seven live. Right. That guy to me is an unheralded hero. Now he he got off the road and didn't you know go tour with Ace Frehley and stuff because he wanted to do the Letterman gig, which 
I would have done too, because that's a smart gig. You get to go home every night, see your family, and you know you you get paid. Uh, but yeah. what what does he bring to it? Because when you listen to, and I'm just going to be on the Kiss side, the Kiss Dynasty, and the the Unmasked, and the Ace Frehleys, and and the stuff that he he's just got an incredible feel that I just don't think a lot of other drummers have. Anton, to me, I introduce him every night as pound for pound the world's greatest drummer, and I mean it, not shtick. Um, Anton can sit there and shuffle like like the great Texas blues drummers. He can play the bottom stuff. He can play straight-ahead rock. He can play blues. He's very dynamic, very explosive, hit hard, but doesn't overplay. You know, he can... He's great in a power trail, but he drives the eight-piece, 11-piece just as well. He's the most versatile drummer on the planet. And he's been playing on my records. And as a side story, having to, having to, to a kiss, about two years ago, Anton came to me and asked me, he's like, we were on tour, and he goes, hey, listen, I have this opportunity in Indianapolis. They've invited me to a kids' convention um, and we have a couple of days off in Chicago. I'm just going to rent the car and drive down there. Is that okay if I leave the tour for a couple of days? Yeah, ample. I don't care, you know? And so he comes back and I'm like, how did it go? He goes, you wouldn't believe it. Right. Cause I think at these kids conventions, they sign, they sign autographs for like $5 or something like that. And because he's never done one and all these kids completists, you know, very rarely have an opportunity to run into Anton Big, which sometimes they're outside the hotel going, Anton, you sign this, you know, whatever record. And he had a line of like 300 people clamoring for his autograph. He cleaned up. He made thousands of dollars that day. And I'm like, I'm like, you're buying dinner because, because, you know, he said he couldn't believe it, you know, and, and, and he was really touched by the awareness of the Kiss fans that, of, of his contributions to the music, especially in that, there was that period of time where he was very active, you know, actively playing with Kiss, but not as a member, but as a, in the studio and other things. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was really cool to see, you know, him be embraced by that fan base so well. And um, yeah, he's, he's, you know, to a Kiss fan, you know, oh yeah, they're very aware. And then Fraley oh, yeah. Comet and, all that stuff that he did, you know, back with the 84, 85-ish, you know. But, uh, yeah, he's, a, he's the greatest. I love him. Oh, I, I love Anton, too. And, and that Indianapolis convention is put together by a guy called Keith LaRue, who happens to be Paul Stanley's personal assistant. And it's to, for a KISS fan, if you have to go to a KISS convention, because there's, there's some all over, that Indianapolis one is the one to go to. So, yeah, no, he's... He's loved by by the fan base. Um, on that, let's at forty five minutes. Let's let's say thank you and maybe consider a part two because there's so many more questions, so much more. I mean, we could be on the phone for two hours uh, and still right. only scratch the surface. But uh, as we say in Montreal, merci. That, that absolute. Pl- this was great for me. This was great. Thank you, Mitch. Yeah, it's been been really fun. Really fun and excellent questions, by the way. Thank you. Not not the well worn path, you know. Yeah, well, listen, I, I'm, I know that you started with the BB King at 12 years old, and I said, you know what? He's probably been asked that 100,000 times. Let's, let's try to go somewhere yeah, else. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, you, again, when we were talking about the Twitter and the posting on the Facebook, you did post a video of you 
uh, doing that, I guess, for Vivi when you were 12, you're like about a, a week ago, two weeks ago, and I watched it. And, yeah. you know, I've seen young players that are 14, 15, and then, you know, now they're 40, and, and you go, oh, there was, a, there was a little nugget of brilliance going on, and then they developed into whatever. But, right. But that 12-year-old, the brilliance was there. I mean, it was just like, wow, you go, wow, he was like at peak form at that age. It's anyway, it was remarkable. So keep posting those things. Thank you. It was, it was remarkable. Anyway, merci, you know, monsieur. It, it, it yeah. is funny. I have not changed. If I, I watch interviews myself when I was, you know, like 12 or 13, like on TV and stuff. And, you know, it freaked out. Well, now my ex-girlfriend, she, she watched them a couple of times. She goes, you know, you have, you have not changed at all since you've been 12. I go, right. You know, <laughs> that's the point, you know. I figured out something that worked and went with it. But anyway, it's it's working. And uh, you were, of course, supposed to be in Montreal for the Jazz Festival. It has, of course, been canceled. Hopefully, it'll be back next year, and hopefully, you will be back next year because I would yeah. love to come and experience the Joe Show uh, up front yeah, and personal. Know, we, we, we always, I mean, we always do really well in Montreal. Just you know, when we come in on a given Saturday, whatever. Um, and I was really looking forward because I had not played Montreal jazz probably in 10 years or more. And, um, I just love the way, I just love the way it's just kind of spread out all over town and, and there's a main stage. And then this thing, I remember, I remember doing the main stage with little Richard back in the day and then playing this place called club soda. Is that still around? Yeah. Oh yeah. Club soda is still around now. There was the old Club Soda, which was down the street, but and right where the the center, like it's it's all in the same area now. So so Club Soda is still there. You know, Montreal venues don't change a lot. So you know, yeah, I just I hope they all survive. You know, I'm just I'm really trepidatious about the future of all because you know it, as it as it stands, you know, I mean the the the, the landscape of the farm system from when I started twenty odd years ago as a solo artist, we were, I was able to get through America and into Canada to build an audience. There was a, there was, there was, you know, 20 or 30, you know, hundred seaters, 200 seaters, blues clubs, jazz clubs, clubs, whatever, that just were been around forever. And everybody had gone through there, you know, and it's like, you could put 50 people at Shank Hall, you know, in, in, you know, in Milwaukee and it felt, it felt okay. And, you know, 50 turned into 75, turned into 150 and beyond. And it, it's, I don't know how long, and their margins are, you know, because, you know, you, you've never met more of a, like people that are just downtrodden and, and bitter financially than a, than a than an entertainment club owner, because it's just, the margins are so slim, even in the salad years. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm not, I'm worried about the survivability of these places. And it'd be sad to see all the farm systems, and all these places go away, you know, because how do you develop an audience? If you're just, you can't, there's nowhere to play you know, other than the arena where you can put a hundred people in an arena. It's insane. You know? No, it, it, the landscape when it opens is going to be exceptionally different. And I will say sort of luckily in Montreal, a lot of those clubs, the club sodas and the Astral and the, they're all owned by the promoter, uh, Evenco, which is a billion-dollar company. So those ones will right. survive. But, you know, when you move over into Ottawa and into Toronto and where there's more independent uh, guys, 
I just don't see how, you know, these places like the Brass Monkey and the Rock Pile where I just don't see how they're going to survive. I mean, if you're closed and there's no money coming in. Yeah. Anyway, anyway. And then, and then when you can open, you're faced with the reality of, of maybe half the people show up if you're lucky, you know, you know, just because of the consumer confidence or whatever mandates about social distancing. It's going to be weird. It's going to be very strange. Well, and and you've also so. got to explore the fact that we don't know about bands, international bands coming in and out. I mean, Canada might say, well, if you're from the States or if you're from Germany, you can't come play here or, or vice versa, you know. And so you're going to have the new reality and then you're going to have maybe bands can't come in. Maybe maybe Joe won't be allowed to come to Montreal in 2021. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's just going to be... Not until there's a vaccine. Not until there's a va- I mean, until there's a real proven clinically studied vaccine, the lens, it's going to, a lot of people are just, it's going to be guesswork. And it's like, oh, you're from, you know, you know, you, you, you're, you're from New York. You can't come here. You know what I mean? It's like, you yeah. know, but, but if you're from Des Moines, yeah, welcome. I mean, it could just, it could pockets where it's really affected people like New York and uh, Chicago, New Jersey, you know, the, the hotspots, maybe just off limits, you know? They won't let you through the border. Oh, they, they might not. And even if you're not from there, they might just say, oh, you played BB Kings in uh, New York last night. Well, then you can't come and play here. And and it's just like you're going to have to rewrap. I mean, the, the, the logistics are just going to be a nightmare. But let us not finish on nightmares. <laughs> let's let's finish on you've got a new album coming out. You've got a new single yeah. that is out now. Uh, you play with Anton Fig, who is a fantastic drummer and, and is connected to the Kiss world. Don't get better than that. Uh, again, yep. merci, monsieur. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks for having me. A real, real, real privilege. Absolutely. Cheers. Here's Paul Stanley to tell you why he doesn't want to shake your hand. Some people might have a little rock and roll pneumonia. Ugh, not even cold gin will kill those germs. This is Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon.